0: Healer presents the Farms Not Farms podcast, sponsored by BuildTheSoil.com. Hold up. Wait. We want to thank you for listening to the Farms Not Farms podcast presented by Guerrilla Healer by giving you a 20% off discount code to GuerrillaHealer.org. Use code SEASON2 when you check out at GuerrillaHealer.org off any item not currently on sale. And also, be sure... To check out buildthesoil.com, our Farms Not Farms podcast sponsor, for all of your organic soil amendment needs. Buildthesoil.com, the internet's number one spot for your organic soil amendments. Back to the podcast.
1: Welcome to the Farms Not Farms podcast. I'm here today with a very special guest, as always. And uh, if you'd be so kind to introduce yourself, and then we'll get right into it.
2: Hi, I'm Donnie Workshafter. I'm an attorney and an entrepreneur, and now I am the founder of the Cannabis Museum here in Athens, Ohio.
1: Cannabis Museum. Tell us a little bit about that, if you will.
2: Well, I had a long career in cannabis, uh, and including a lot of time spent creating what are now the approved medicines that are made out of cannabis, the Sativex and Epidiolex. I worked on those teams for a few years. And throughout that time, I always heard pharmaceutical executives saying, well, cannabis has never been accepted as an approved medicine in the United States. Or you know, it's never been mainstream medicine. How are you going to make it there now? And I knew that was wrong. We had some evidence. Everybody's got that picture of the Park Davis bottle of cannabis medicine. And there, there was some other evidence that it was you know, used, but I set out to collect the history of it and try to prove its mainstream acceptance. So we did this by collecting over 1,300 now cannabis containers prior to 1937. And let's see, there's a few of them here behind me in, in these cabinets here or over here. If you can see it in there. Just got rooms full of these jars. And individually, they're interesting, but taken together, they tell a long story about cannabis and its history of use in the United States. And this is the information we're trying to get out. We're trying to, um, you know, these jars are really difficult to transport. They're difficult to. display because they're so valuable and fragile. So we've become photographers of these things, trying to disseminate the information. We've decided that photography is our best technique. And so we've come up with a couple of photo series that uh, we're selling to dispensaries and to a couple of doctor's offices. Um, And it's, it's become a little bit international. We're selling these things around the world right now. Um, they're great for the, the the photography we're taking of these bottles is great for walls of dispensaries because they take naive individuals. A lot of people coming into the dispensaries are hurting and they're looking for relief, but they're scared and they don't know what this crazy new medicine is. And all they've heard is 50 years of bullshit about it. And the idea that they can walk in and see that this is old medicine that a hundred years ago, this was common use medicine makes them feel much more relaxed about their trying this thing that they realize that this was accepted and used and safe and considered safe and used on children and used for the same conditions they have a hundred years ago it takes out the fear factor they realize that this is just old folk medicine you know old-time medicine and um, they're much more, willing to be patients once they get this information and that's why we're trying to emphasize sales of this art to dispensaries and places where people are coming to the doctors offices with in the medical states where they have to spend a half hour in the lobby before they see the doctor they might as well be getting some good information
1: so basically these jars are what uh, artifacts of medicine that was available prior to cannabis prohibition in this country that show that cannabis was one of the main ingredients in that particular medicine. That's what you're uh, yeah. cataloging. This,
2: this starts with the apothecaries. The apothecaries come from a thousand years back and they were very developed as a profession in the 1700s. Um, you had a physician who would write a recommendation and they would take the patient would take it to the apothecary and the apothecary would mix up the the formula for them and that's how medicine worked until about the turn of the 20th century that uh, until about 1899 all of the drugs were dispensed out of these apothecaries you can imagine these places with their shelves full of bottles and uh that that was really the trademark of the the pharmacy was that they would the the apothecary would have all these jars of all these herbs and the jars themselves 100 years ago were really unique glass was rare uh, considered at times more precious than gold and So it was a really good technique for the apothecaries to display this stuff in glass because it was almost magical at the time. Um, And it was a really good vehicle for them to store and display the herbs that they were selling to people. Uh, Over time, glass got less expensive and less expensive to produce. They came up with better furnaces. They came up with better steel techniques. They came up with... Uh, molds that you could blow the glass into and then they came up with machines that automatically blowed the glass into molds and glass went from being really expensive to being really inexpensive and that created a total shift in the economy of medicine in that no longer did you have to go to the apothecary and wait for him to put a formula together and then you could take it home Um, Now companies were selling ready-made off-the-shelf products for people and the apothecary's job was diminished uh, a lot. This was also at the same time they were trying to create medicines from chemicals instead of plants and um, it wasn't just cannabis but all the plants were kind of kicked out of the drugstore pretty over a period of time. Cannabis was just the the best and most shining example of all these solid herb remedies that people were using 100 years ago that we've forgotten about now, or basically have forgotten about. Um, There's a lot of revival of this coming back up. I think it's really uh, ironic that Everybody's talking about drugs, but you have to understand where the word drug came from. And um, hundred years ago, drugs were dried herbs. And the word drug is like the word drought or dry. It's the Dutch word for drying. So the drugs were the dried herbs. And now we've turned that around and we think of drugs as being chemicals and the herbs as not being drugs, but it originally dried herbs was all we had as drugs and cannabis was one of the most effective of them it was the number three bestseller behind opium and codeine or, uh, um, I'm sorry um, I guess i'm thinking cocaine um, uh, the, you know the, those those were really really powerful and cannabis was third in sales behind those for at least 60 years running. and was only surpassed in the number three position in the 1920s by aspirin. (laughs) So uh, cannabis was quite the mainstream medicine. It was used in many different formulas. They understood how to use it. They understood the difference between CBD and THC and the use of the two in combination and that they had, and this is controversial, but this is the conclusion we reach from examining all these jars. We have over 60 sets that differentiate sativa from indica. Right? And so they, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, they had their British, you know, the English, the European varieties of sativa that were identified back in the 1700s. And it wasn't until 30 years later that Ships began to bring cannabis in from Asia. And this was a totally different cannabis because genetics were different. It produced THC instead of CBD. They called it cannabis indica because it was coming from India. And so indica in the early days signified a THC-bearing plant, sativa a a CBD-bearing plant. And then they had cannabis Americana, which was a combination of the two, kind of like we sell Sativex today, which is CBD and THC together for multiple sclerosis and um, spasticity disorders.
1: And Sativex is um, a um, cannabis-based or theorized drug that's released by GW Pharma
2: Well, GW Pharma has sold out to Jazz Pharmaceuticals in recent weeks, but it was uh, a GW pharmaceutical product. And it, you know, they've kind of slow walked its introduction. It's available in 30 some countries around the world, but not in the US. Although I expect that we will see Sativex available within the US within a year. Uh, They're not going to anymore. I think that um, the world's ready for Sativex, and its it sales should be huge compared to Epidiolex, which is just the pure CBD form that's being used for childhood epilepsies.
1: And what was your involvement uh, with GW Pharma? Oh, I was involved from the
2: beginning. I was part of Horta Farm, which was a, a Dutch company that spent years breeding cannabis for medical use. And then in 98, when Dr. Guy came around wanting to develop cannabis pharmaceuticals, we all realized that he was the right guy to be able to do it, that he had already... i got to call her back. Okay.
1: I was like, you got a duck?
2: <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> No, I will deduct that. Uh, (laughs) um, Sorry. GW Pharma. GW Pharma um, basically bought out the technology of Hortifarm, the company we had in in Holland that did the breeding. Uh, Dr. Guy had uh, already developed time-release opiates. And which involved him growing opium poppies and, you know, to develop the medicine, they had to do it straight from the plant. So he already had a Schedule One license going. And for for him to get his uh, license to be able to grow cannabis in England took five weeks. And where I already worked five years trying to help John Stahl develop a license in the U.S. in in the 90s, and I had gotten nowhere with this. Dr. Guy went and got a license in five weeks. So, okay, fine. All the momentum switched huh, from Amsterdam to England, and it has been in England ever since. So there's been 20-some years of development of these drugs. It's been one roadblock after another, but the development of these medicines has turned the medical profession around. It's really why... Marijuana as a medicine is now being accepted again as mainstream medicine is because of all these peer reviewed, double blind, gold standard, scientific studies that GW did over the last 20 years that are published in these journals that the doctors see. And that has one by one convinced doctors that this is a valid medicine and that it's useful in today's society. And so you're seeing the the numbers for at least the medical states; those numbers are going up as more and more doctors get confidence with the use of the medicine, and more and more patients get confident. So, you know, a lot of these changes that we're seeing today in the whole scene can be traced back to the developments of actually finally getting the scientific testing that everybody was demanding before they were going to let marijuana be a medicine tests like if you give marijuana to somebody who's already an addict, is it going to spark them to use heroin again? You know, that's a drug liability study. If you're, you know, the, the studies about this marijuana cause cancer. Well, we had to prove marijuana doesn't cause cancer or you wouldn't have gotten your drug on the market. There were hundreds of little roadblocks like that in the development of these drugs, but the doctors see this stuff and it's, a big reason why the profession is changing its mind on this uh, and why the medical professions aren't fighting medical marijuana anymore. They're embracing it.
1: So for the people who come to this episode completely naive, don't know who you are, don't know about your history and don't know your contributions to this industry, um, and for somebody like myself who recently learned about you, Barbara Philippone said, you got to know this guy and, and, and have a conversation with him. But she felt that we would probably be able to learn. I, I'd be able to learn from you and share what I learned. And I've been in the cannabis world since 1997 and loving it since since, for, you know, since that time. And it saved my life. I've, I've been a, a part of uh, campaigns, seeing it save lives of people and animals. And so. That's a quick overview of who I am and learning about who you are, I would have to say that as a somebody who's been a caregiver and outside of the industry, so to speak, for quite some time, you know, the allure of the fear associated with GW Pharma and Big Pharma and associating those two together, whereas what I'm hearing from you now is GW Pharma was a company that might have come into this in a different way than what people might expect. So maybe you can open a window into that a little bit and teach somebody like myself who doesn't know much about what GW Pharma is all about. You know, obviously coming into it as a caregiver, um, maybe it's not obvious, but for me, I pay attention to full spectrum um, oils and and, and products. And, and, you know, in that way, I see the different um, efficacy factors in, applying isolates or distillates versus full spectrum and how that, um, you know, impacts patients as a whole. And so one of the, the, one of the notions that's coming into my head is a throughout the time of since prohibition. And, and let's just say in the past 20 years that we've known that cannabis uh, or more than 20 years now, maybe 40 years, we've known that cannabis, um, has a major role in the body system. And we know that it, it, it um, you know, patent 6630507 has been around for quite some time. I guess, what's this, the 90s? That, that 88. was what's that 88? 98. 98. That specifically um, divulges the U.S. government's um, understanding that cannabis has medical benefit. So with that understanding, knowing that it would take more, research to be presented in order for the medical community to accept this, that it's necessary for some company to spearhead that movement. So I'll stop talking. Maybe you can open up this window for us if you can and teach me what's going on.
2: Well, yeah, you have about 12 questions there on that (laughs) question. (laughs) But the one that I remember most was laughing when people talk about GW Pharmaceuticals as big pharma. You know, because I saw it start as three of us, yeah, and saw it be just the scientists involved, and saw no big money coming into it until maybe eight years ago when they came over to the U.S. and started selling stock. But uh, it's certainly not big pharma, it was a tiny little pharmaceutical company and a bunch of dedicated scientists that did this on their own, and uh. So that, that one
1: always tickles me. I love That's interesting department. what you're saying. You know, three, three, three scientists that on their own basically got cannabis uh, um, implemented as a legal drug, which in one sense, you know, is amazing. And in another sense, it's, um, you know, it, it, it tells naturalists like, why do we have to alter it and blah, blah, blah. But I, I really, I think that this do- dynamic is, is so important because in order to bring something from the forest to the pharmacy, you know, that there, there, there are qualifications that obviously the regulators need in order to, um, you know, tell doctors that we feel comfortable with you giving this to people. <laughs> so what, what have you learned in, in terms of, You know, bringing something like that that was completely illegal into the realm of understanding that now it's being accepted by the medical community. That, you know, that's what everybody has been wanting for so long.
2: Well, yeah, I thought that we set a really sterling example of how it could be done. And there are a few companies that have begun the process of doing the tox studies and doing the lab work and doing the research and, you know, getting up the scientific knowledge that they need to even be able to dose people in valid scientific experiments. And there are a few of those that are following GW's footsteps, and they're coming along, and they'll have products on the market within a couple of years. And then you have some bootleggers who saw Sativex coming out there and started, you know, hawking CBD they, they, you know, first it was dirty, filthy, um, almost toxic CBD, and pretty soon they got their technique techniques down, and there was then there was CBD, and everybody started to sell it in the gas stations and the, and you know, it's become almost a joke, which dilutes the impact of the real medicine, and yeah, it. Um, It's dangerous. I mean, this stuff with the vape pens, we've kind of dodged the bullet on. I think COVID kind of stopped a wave of lawsuits that I thought was gonna come because so many people died from people taking shortcuts with making vape pens. Hundreds of people died from what they're calling vaping disease, which is really just adulterants in the vaporizers Trying to make stuff cheaper and reach the bottom line, you know, trying to trying to trying to make as much money as you can as quickly as you can before you're taken off the market. Um, I have the same issues with Delta Eight and Delta Ten and some of these other chemicals that people were putting on the market without the proper scientific review. Yeah, and so I. I I predict a small disaster coming here from one of these. There's gonna be evidence coming out of one of these things. You can't say a drug like CBD works really good for epilepsy, but it's not psychoactive. You know, if it's gonna work as a medicine, then it's making brain changes. It's making brain changes in all the people who don't need their change, brains changed. And so, yeah, you know, these things shouldn't just be launched on the market without the proper amount of review. And having the FDA approval is really the right way to go. Everything else is very vulnerable to being taken off the market in a day. You could have a million dollars worth of inventory that's now worthless because they put a red tag on it. Uh, these companies are taking a lot of chances especially these Delta 8 companies now they're trying to deal with all this surplus CBD they created um, and I don't know where it's going to go but I you know the lawyer in me is very concerned and cautious and feels that nobody's doing this well and nobody's doing this right and it's going to turn around and burn the whole industry well
1: the, you know One of the things about my contribution to to our world is that um, Mm -hmm. I I have seen the lack of care applied to our sensitive population and not interest and not even necessarily intent, but true care in terms of paying attention to detail and how and how each and every variable impacts life and Mm -hmm. from you know, 2014, 2015, the companies using safflower oil for children who had uh, epilepsy, which in my body is in, inflames my gut. And in other children, more sensitive populations were inflaming them as well and, and creating more of a counterproductive scenario that would work a little bit, but ultimately not all the way. Or other companies creating waiting lists and not giving out any information. I think that it's important that we we end up having... Uh, information, uh, you know, education is power, right? And so with that knowledge comes the ability to apply it as wisdom. And therefore around the world, we can see for thousands of years, you know, there's various cultures that traditionally have been using cannabis and other plants that may or may not be illegal in, in parts of the world to, to benefit and raise the quality of lives in sick and, and just perhaps even just regulating life in general. And learning about the cannabinoid system, and learning about how how it regulates these major body systems for us to be healthier individuals, I think that it's it's kind of torturous to keep us from that. So I I have to, as a life protector and life lover, salute anybody who's going to, you know, do the work, do the diligence that that creates the research available to get people like my father, who's been a doctor for a long time, that is known about cannabis and enjoyed cannabis in his own, you know, observations or whatever. um, And throughout his life, yet wasn't able to grab a hold of research as his doctor mind would say, I need to qualify in order to give this to somebody else. And so, you know, I think that the work that, that GW Pharma has done in that way is obviously advanced <laughs> um, our world to a point where it's 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 a mainstream conversation now where it's not so taboo anymore, and there's good reason for it. And so, regardless of the conversation of you know isolates versus isolates versus full spectrum, and 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 even bringing in other chemicals uh, or or chemical processes um, that might even create what. You know, I don't know if you do. You consider Delta eight a synthetic cannabinoid?
2: Uh, it's certainly a synthetic cannabinoid. Yeah, I mean, there are minute quantities of it naturally present in some cannabis varieties, but to you know, it's being what's on the market is definitely
1: synthetically derived. Yeah, it's processed from something else, and it wasn't yeah. naturally derived in that way. So, for you know, I'm not here hating on people using or supplying, supplying Delta eight. What I'm saying is in my own practice, I haven't been able to feel comfortable about giving it to anybody because, you know, um, I, I just don't know enough about it. And in that way, what I do know about and what I have been able to see is that, um, you know, the, the real, real work can be done with, with, uh, qualified in, in my in my opinion something that has a full panel on it that has no heavy metals no pesticides has been grown the right way has been handled the right way i don't personally enjoy using chemicals um you know obviously we've all taken dabs from from bho that have tasted incredible and we've all taken dabs or any of us that have taken dabs from co2 extracts has tasted terrible and we understand that terpenes are a major role in how something tastes, how something's gonna affect us. And so in the full spectrum world, I enjoy preserving these, these, these major uh, you know um, derivatives and uh, and and beneficials. Um, what have you seen in throughout your years of research? I know we're talking a little bit more about GW pharma than the museum at the moment, but you know, I learning that you've been involved in that kind of blows my mind and says, okay. Let's let's do some work and, and reflect a little bit on, on what you've learned throughout your years of being one of the biggest companies, of being a part of one of the biggest companies in the world related to cannabis.
2: Well, I realize, you know, that there are a lot of people out there that will take the front runner and try to shoot him in the back. Right? Uh, there were arrows going at GW from all directions because they were five, 10 years ahead of everybody else and everybody else was like, oh, they're going to keep us from, from making cannabis. Oh, they've got a patent and they're gonna try to get a, can, a patent on cannabis and they're gonna come into our grow rooms and stop us because we're violating their patent. There was all this fear of yep. GW spending its big money which it didn't have on lobbying against cannabis because they've got the medicine or any of that. None of that proved true. GW has not interfered at all with the scene coming down. They let the CBD quote industry unquote develop without any interference from from them, even though they've got lots of legal basis for Opposing anybody trying to hawk a CBD product right now, they have sat on their hands and just tried to concentrate on their own sales and not try to interfere with all this
1: crazy shit that people are doing with CBD right now. It was one of the notions that a company like GW Pharma, who had the only only pharmaceutically approved cannabis product on the market, could you know the potential of fear existed, right? That that um, it would uh, lobby for a schedule two or further, so that um, government can only, you know, big pharma controlled cannabis. And uh, you know, obviously, that's that's a, a big deal to many of us who who want. Who, who sure, but
2: what happened? They lobbied and got it totally off the schedule. Mm, and so talk about good. it which is what we were trying to do with cannabis. No, Epidiolex is not a scheduled drug now. It started off as Schedule Five, but they turned in the paperwork and showed that it didn't cause addiction and that it wasn't a drug of abuse. And the uh, FDA and DEA responded to say, okay, fine, this is no longer a scheduled drug. It's still only available by prescription but it's not scheduled. So it's much easier for doctors to prescribe off-label and um, there's, there's not all the concerns and cautions, the, the triplicate forms and everything that you'd have with a highly scheduled drug.
1: And again, Epidiolex is uh, basically um, close to pure CBD um, product, yeah? It's a plant extract. That is
2: filtered, is the best way of saying it. You can look up their technique and how they do it. It's very, very innovative. But they have a way of pulling the THC out of the CBD so that they, you know, because naturally for most varieties, you're going to get about 25 to 1 ratio of CBD to THC. There are minor genetics in the plant that will continue to produce some THC, even though the main genetics are set for the production of CBD, which is why we have these ratios. And um, for a drug for children, it was thought that the THC would not be acceptable. And so they are using a a really cool filtering technique, uh, chromatography technique that is able to separate much of the THC out of the CBD. But the epidialics and especially Sativex, have many of the natural terpenoids and flavonoids from the original extracts intact. Oh, cool. I, I thought, looking at that patent, I thought it was some brilliant work. Huh. That they've got something, and now if you try to copy that, and and know, uh, yeah, you might get into some intellectual property sure. with jazz pharmaceuticals. But uh, um, people are getting around that by coming up with varieties that are pretty much pure CBD varieties, and people are, uh, you know, uh, some of these techniques for isolating CBD also get rid of it. T H C, yeah. For the, this isolate, is pretty free of T H C.
1: Um, so G W just got bought out by Jazz Pharmaceuticals. Yes. Yeah. Do you know and anything that about is, that? Well, I'm following it. Um, okay. So course. you're not involved with G W anymore,
2: is that? No, I haven't been for ten years. Okay. I've been the number one uh, observer because my family and my friends are all invested in it so heavily that uh, I've had to keep an eye on the thing. I'm not very happy with, with a lot of what I see, but uh, it's over. Now we're you know, bought out and have some jazz shares as a result. I think jazz is gonna do very well with these stocks, with these uh, drug products, and their stock price is gonna reflect that within a year or two when people realize The potential of Sativex and the potential of Epidiolex if it's taken around the world and then the potential of all these new inventions that the company came up with that they were really quiet about through that sale. So I I expect good things for jazz and I expect them to be um, good supporters of cannabis and the cannabis industry and
1: that's good. You know, there, there was a company, you know, for a company that has it on market, and you're saying did not lobby against free market, you know, that uh, in theory is applaudable, right? And while we while we all know, those of us who are in the know know that there were companies who went around lobbying for um, hemp as basically saying let's legalize cannabis without having the THC, which you know, you you had touched on the fact that THC wouldn't be acceptable for children. In theory, in, in, in people's minds and, you know, with with healthy fears or, or even unhealthy fears in this case being a factor, you know, people would have, a, I imagine, uh, trouble saying, OK, let's get THC to our children, especially with all the propaganda that's been put out there that's saying it's stunting brain growth. And in certain levels of met, you know, I've seen it save children's lives and I've seen it do miraculous things. And that's not to say it's for everybody or, you know, you know, obviously everybody's different. So the recipe that two twins might need for the same issue might need, might, they might need different treatments, right? And mm-hmm. with that being said, I think that it's important to just, at least for this episode, touch on the fact that THC in my, in my experience has not been the enemy at all. If anything, it's been a huge ally. And if anything, I, I see that some children, if not many, Require more THC than what's being allotted or allowed, allowed um, due to these not you know uneducated unhealthy fears that that THC is is bad. Um, so thank you for letting me share that. You're welcome to obviously. Yeah, no argument
2: for me on that. You, you're, you're absolutely right. This is a fear-based regulatory system that is not scientific. <laughs> kind of like we treated COVID.
1: <laughs> <sighs> well. And in the the, uh, spirit of uh, letting this podcast fly and not getting (laughs) bad, I'll just fly right over that one and say, hey, Barbara told me that you're probably one of the first people to bring a roll of hemp fabric into this country. You want to tell me a little bit about that?
2: This is true. In 1990, oh, sorry, 1989, I had a small town law office. I was doing environmental work. And got really frustrated with the system. Uh, Criminal justice was falling apart with the minimum mandatory sentences, uh, with uh, uh, taking away judges discretion, with the good faith exception. Practicing criminal law was no fun. Uh, The prosecutors had all the power all of a sudden. So I looked for something that was going to change the world and decided that a hemp campaign would be the way to go. In 1998, I started selling hemp products along with a few friends and we did stands for normal here and there and developed some little products. We found a stash of hemp twine and bought it out and created this fad where Everybody was making little hemp friendship bracelets for a few years. And people got really good at their crocheting and their macrame with this. And we sold a hell of a lot of hemp twine. Uh, you and said what year
1: was that now? 98,
2: I don't know, 88, 90, 91. Okay, like 80, 88.
1: I was going to say, 98, I already saw hemp back. Yeah, <laughs> Or hemp yeah. twine yeah. out, people yeah. making necklaces and whatnot. So 88.
2: Uh, No, I mean, if I had to hire a lawyer to explain five times a day why what we were selling was legal, I would have gone broke quickly. Thankfully, I was a lawyer and I could, people listened to me and, you know, I was able to get hemp into things like the Natural Products Show against a whole lot of resistance and uh, the National Boutique Show and all these things. were really hesitant to accept hemp as a product, especially the food part of it. But I got people like Dr. Andrew Weil to endorse us, and he was like a god in the industry at the time. And so he wrote an article that came out the day that we hit our first trade show. We made 5,000 copies of it and gave it to everybody in the show and launched the hemp oil industry. And it was great timing. Um, Launched the hemp oil
1: industry. Tell me, what, what do you mean?
2: Well, You know, I bought a small oil press, and I was buying hemp seeds by the truckload, and we were making hemp oil, but it was of poor food quality. It was more we were selling it for body care and all this. And so then I made a deal with Spectrum Naturals, where they pressed our uh, seeds on their really sophisticated equipment, and they could bottle it and all under food-safe conditions. So by February 99, we were <coughs> selling hemp oil to health food stores around the country. Wow. With Dr. Andrew wiles endorsement. Awesome. And had, with Carol Miller, I wrote the hemp seed cookbook that we produced in 1990. It was a little handwritten cookbook. Uh, it's, it's a lot of foods I won't eat today. My diet's improved considerably. <laughs> uh, uh, we did the hemp seed cookbook. It's, it's fairly dessert-oriented. We didn't realize what a good crust it would make for fish or things like that at the time. Um, and so we were selling the hemp seed cookbook and a pound of seeds out of my law office, which was a problem because it was two stories walk-up law office, and we had to carry these 20 or 50-pound bags up the stairs and then we'd sell them and carry all these packages down the stairs. So we ended up buying a building out here that we still use. That was in 93 or four. And uh, the hempery lasted until 2002. We got hit hard by 9-11. It wasn't the, the disaster itself, but in the weeks after 9-11, the federal government used 9-11 as an excuse to cut back a bunch of freedoms that we had. Oh. And they, they decided they were going to go after physician-assisted suicide, for example. And one of the things they did in this few-day time period where you know, the hammer came down after 9-11 was they said that hemp um, intended for food was a Schedule One controlled substance. Oh. And so that made meant that everything in my basement, everything in our warehouse was now... A hazardous waste basically you couldn't throw it in the landfill you had a cow hazardous waste people to get rid of it which is usually expensive so instead of having a hundred thousand dollars worth of inventory i had a fifty thousand dollar bill for cleanup and so we fought that wow. as an industry uh, dr brauner was really instrumental in this my company was you know showing at these food shows responsible for turning David Bronner on to industrial hemp. He had just graduated from Harvard and took over the company that his grandfather started. His father had just died. And so he was put in charge and he found hemp oil at the trade show with us. And they started putting hemp oil in the soap and their sales doubled. And now they're becoming a huge company. Uh, Love that. He's Uh, And and they can show that their sales started to boom the minute they put him on their label. And, but but the Bronner family is extremely generous and they have a fund for doing social work. And so that fund paid for the expensive lawyers it took for us to beat the DEA in court. And we beat them. And it's all getting done. And then they come and change the rules again. And we had to start all over again with a whole new suit. And we beat them the second time. This is DEA 1 and 2 from probably 2003 and 4. And uh, very good uh, logical reasoning why the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals said that the government was out of bounds when the DEA tried to regulate foods. Um, and so that opened up the industry some, it certainly in 98 is the year that Canada opened up for production and as the government shut down my ability to get seeds, they actually went to the factory where my seeds were being treated in Pennsylvania and started to pull a raid on them for a couple of days till the people in Pennsylvania figured out this was about the hemp. And well, would you rather we just not process any more hemp? Yeah. Yeah. And so. They shut down the Pennsylvania mill, left. They didn't do anything else. It was all about just shutting down their hemp processing. And so hemp seeds got really hard to produce in the US or to uh, even obtain in the US. And so all the shift, all the momentum moved up to Canada, uh, where it's become a huge industry, employing tens of thousands of people and you know, approaching a billion dollars a year in sales. And this is something the US could have had if it wouldn't have put handcuffs on its own entrepreneurs. It's like televisions and VCRs and all these machines that we invented here. It'll never be produced in the US again because the foreign competition just wipes us out. And we let that happen to the hemp industry. And it's only now in recent years starting to come back, but most all of it, 90 some percent of it is just a CBD scam, as far as I'm concerned. I'm not really uh, seeing anybody really making money in it and I'm not really seeing uh, that many people being helped and I'm seeing a lot of people being turned off to CBD. Oh, it don't work for me. When they, all they got from the gas station was something that said it
1: had CBD in it without any CBD in it. Oh man, they're lucky if it says phytocannabinoids on the label. <laughs>
2: yeah. Yes, right. So there's been a lot of dilution of the of the product that I'm not very happy about. But GW has chosen to do nothing about it and has let the CBD industry prosper as it may.
1: Fair enough. So what have you been doing in the past ten years since your? Uh since your growth from this uh, adventure?
2: Well, you know, I was always a cannabis collector. I have stuff I collected about cannabis from high school, my high school days. And as my time opened up, as I no longer had to be working so hard as a lawyer, I got more and more and more into this collection. I met some fantastic helpers along the way. I've got one uh, friend out in California who spent his professional career taking pharmacies apart. 1,500 pharmacies shut down in the state of California in favor of these big chains. And his job was to go in and rescue the drugs that were still usable and sell them back to the drug companies. And then all the rest of the stuff, he got to do what he wanted with it. So he ran a flea market stand for many years. And through this stand, he met all of the sophisticated, high-end glass collectors. So on my behalf, over the last 18 years, I think, he's gone to every collector he knows and talked them out of their cannabis collections. And that's the reason why I have this amazing collection. It's more him than that. Uh, eBay has a lot of things on it. Probably 75% of them are flat-out fakes. You have to be really careful, uh, which has both helped the market and hurt the market. I got a jar the other day for $135 that I bit up to $600 on because I thought it was so uh, significant. Here, I'm just gonna grab it. It's right behind it. Nope, that didn't work. Somebody already grabbed it, somebody saw its value, but this is eczemol. This is a Merrill pharmaceutical company selling a cannabis extract for eczema 100 years ago. And you see, these I think are really valuable. The fact that these scientists, physicians, and apothecaries 100 years ago Saw that cannabis worked on the same conditions that we're saying it works for today is significant, both to prove its value, but also to disprove any patent claims that people may come up with. Oh, we've invented that cannabis works for epilepsy, and I'm going to put this on the market, and then you can't, do it and then. you know, you can't, and. and uh, um, this collection negates much of that potential of people being able to claim wild cures for cannabis, because if they were doing it 100 years ago, then it's obvious and not patentable. It's not a new invention. Yes, yeah, not a new invention. And, and so I'm trying to keep the trolls out of here. Uh, hold on. OK, go ahead. Busy phone today.
1: All good, all good. You know, better to be busy than bored. Anything else? Well, I mean, you know, you, you've you've uh, you've taught me a lot about who you are and um, and what you've been doing all this time, and uh, I'm pretty I'm pretty impressed with uh, you know all the all the aspects of the cannabis world that you've been been involved in. I feel like this is a perfect opportunity if there's anything that you're walking around thinking in your mind, like, man, I really want people to know this, that this is a great time to to share that and anything else that you wish to, um, you know, just uh, bless us with and and any gems that that you have that you want people to know of or think about.
2: Well, for years, we thought we were just gonna be a virtual museum and put this all online and then About four months ago, the perfect building opened up. This 1905 general store that was a coal mine, coal company town, coal, you know, where you go with the script you'd make for working at the mine and have to go spend it at the general store, the company store. And so this we've got this 1905 beautiful building that I bought three weeks ago. And so we actually are going to end up with the museum on the ground here in Athens, Ohio. Within that relations and it's it's really quite a project because it's it's really the whole mine. I got the general store, but I also got the, the wash house building and I've got all these other like where they did all the steam generation and this 185 foot smokestack and all these big industrial buildings and so we've spent cleaning up all the trees around these buildings and cleaning it up and now we have the engineer coming on Friday morning to evaluate what we can keep and we're you know this is this is a massive project it's going to be years in the making but I got the time and I'm really having a lot of fun doing that so someday you're all going to be able to come to Athens Ohio and see the original jars in the meantime you need to Ask your dispensary to get some for their walls.
1: Fair enough. How do
2: people get in touch with you? Uh, cannabismuseum.com. They... Cannabismuseum.com.
0: Yep.
2: Amazing. Don at cannabismuseum.com is my email, and you're welcome to write me any, any of your uh, podcast listeners. And uh, um,
1: so, real quick, you, you being that you brought hemp into this country in 1988 that means to me that you learned a little bit about other cultures interactions with cannabis prior to a lot of people in this country really um thinking about it in the ways that we are today and so i
2: i was in amsterdam in the 70s when they were doing the experiment where you could go to the clubs and they would have a house dealer and it was tolerated by the government. And I thought that was a great model. And I spent many years trying to get the United States to see that that was a good model and a great way to go. Um, We've developed our own model. I'm not very happy with the way the cannabis industry is developed and how we have the various mm, crime organizations involved in the and the cannabis uh, multi-state operators game going on right now. Um, I think we've done an extremely poor job of implementation of legalization. California is, uh, you know, the leading example, but in my own
1: state of Ohio, it was such a corrupt giveaway to I heard there was a lot of shenanigans in the Ohio situation.
2: Well, it it really formed the basis for all these MSOs and multi-state organizations coming in. you know, they came in and they gamed the Ohio thing. And there'll be details of this coming out later. But, you know, this is all related to our last two speakers of the House of Ohio have both been uh, resigned because of uh, indictments or... Investigations, at least. Um, And where this is going, it's hard to say. Whether they're going to focus on some of the other scandals that happened with the same people, their payday lending, the uh, pharmacy benefits managers, they did the same. The same people did this thing where they got the utility company to give them $60 million. And they they used it as a slush fund to give it to um, guys running for the state legislature, you know, what's the condition that they're going to vote for this utility company, and it's just one thing after another. Cannabis was just one of these things that the Ohio Graft got a hold of and used to generate millions of dollars, and the timing of it was really crazy because we had governor, uh, our governor running for president at the time, and he was trying to raise money, and it was a really convenient way for him to raise money, and no, Ohio um, has one scandal after another. Here I am in the, the, the cool pot part of Ohio. I'm in the college town of Athens, Ohio, and everybody here knows this is like hippie central. And we don't have a dispensary because the multi state operator who won the uh, right to have our dispensary here and four other locations near us. Well, they got caught cheating on their application. Mm. Um, they said, oh, they were a minority-owned business when they weren't. And wow. as soon as, you know, they weren't supposed to transfer from the minority owner to anybody else for a year after they opened. But within a few weeks of winning that lottery, they're selling these licenses on the Canadian Stock Exchange and creating, you know, these, these multi-state operators that we have now all kind of rooted up from around Ohio. And you can read the writings of Angela Baca. She's she's been researching this a lot and has Uh um, done a fairly good job of exposing the corruption in Florida and Ohio. And soon, if she ever gets her book out, it will really explain how all these Trump supporters well, campaigning against marijuana, were quickly lining themselves up to get the dispensaries around the country.
1: Is that BACCA? Baca? BACCA, Angela Baca, Yes. Okay, I'm gonna look into her. Thank you. She sounds like somebody who's uh, doing some real journalism. I like that. Um, wow. All right. Well, good talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. I look forward to uh, to linking with you again. All the best with your uh, with your museum. Sounds like it's needed. If you don't already know, the original Charlotte's Web was created in Ohio, the Wu4 by Chris Wu. I can connect you with him if you ever want that connection. No, um, lemon yeah, G13, really great stuff coming from Ohio. Shout out to two and everybody over You know, yeah, lemon G is from a friend of mine. It's still my favorite. Uh, <laughs> yes, sir. Well, salute. Thank you, Barbara, for this interview. Don. Keep up the great work. You, you seem like you got a great heart and I'm glad that, uh, that we can do this. And as always, we'll end sharing the miracle of life with a deep breath on the count of three. One, two, three. Good talking to you. You too, bud. Be well. Thank you again. Definitely check out buildthesoil.com. Subscribe to the Farms Not Farms podcast on Spotify and Apple Music and uh, always check out all the archived episodes in case you can't find one on Spotify or Apple at farmsnotfarms.org. Thank you be well.
0: Subscribe to the Farms Not Farms podcast on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts and watch the full episode at youtube.com slash burntmd.